I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He has led me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely he has turned his hand against me time and time again throughout the day. He has aged my flesh and my skin and broken my bones. He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and woe. He has set me in dark places like the dead of long ago. He has hedged me in so that I cannot get out. He has made my chain heavy. Even when I cry and shout, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with hewn stone. He has made my paths crooked. He has been to me a bear lying in wait, like a lion in ambush. He has turned aside my ways and torn me in pieces. He has made me desolate. He has bent his bow and set me up as a target for the arrow. He has caused the arrows of his quiver to pierce my loins. I've become the ridicule of all my people, their taunting song all the day. He has filled me with bitterness. He has made me drink wormwood. He has also covered my teeth with gravel and covered me with ashes. You have moved my soul far from peace. I have forgotten prosperity. And I said, my strength and my hope have perished from the Lord. Remember my affliction and roaming, the wormwood and the gall. My soul still remembers and sinks within me. This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone and keep silent, because God has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes him and be full of reproach. But the Lord will not cast off forever. Though he causes grief, yet he will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. For he does not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men. So the introductory uh, quotation is from David Dixon, which I think summarizes especially uh, that last part of uh, Lamentations that we read very well. This is his comment on verse 23. You who say, you see no compassions, but all tokens of wrath, I answer, compassion may remain and yet not appear. It is not removed, albeit it be overclouded, as the sun is still in the firmament, yet it is not always observed. Therefore, judge not of God's compassion by appearance. So in our study of Lamentations, we've gone through the first uh, two poems, uh, chapters one and two. And uh, those were A to Z's of laments of the suffering of uh, Zion, uh, of Jerusalem, with the uh, conquest by the Babylonians. And now uh, we come to the middle poem, it's the center of the book. There are five chapters altogether. And in the center of the book is uh, an amazing shift toward hope. So I'm going to summarize what that hope is, and then we'll, we'll step through it. But it's important to realize from the start that the hope that the writer expresses is not 
hope in better circumstances per se, or hope in uh, getting through things. The hope comes from knowing God, from knowing who God is and what he does, and from finding God as the ultimate good in spite of all the devastation uh, that the poet has seen. So there, uh, in terms of the poetry, the structure of the chapter, this is an acrostic, uh, as chapters one and two were, but it's a triple acrostic. So in uh, the original verse one, uh, the first letter of the first word would begin with Aleph. In verse two, the first letter of the first word would also begin with Aleph. And in verse three, the first letter of the first word would begin with Aleph, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And that's why... Uh, in most Bibles, the, the first stanza, verses one through three, those are grouped together. So they would all uh, begin with the same uh, letter of the alphabet. Now, it has the kind of effect of making you think, because now there are 66 verses, that this is three times as long as the first two chapters. But if you look in your Bible, it's exactly the same length as the first two chapters. It's just that uh, they added verses to key us in, I assume, to key us into this uh, repetition of, of the letter. So that in itself, if you were reading uh, in Hebrew, say, for the first time, this would draw your attention. There's something different about this. There's a, a greater intensity, even in the poetry of chapter 3. And I want to develop that further but by uh, what else would particularly strike you in reading the, the book for the first time. And that's so that's... Uh, we, we do have an outline as simple as it may be. That's the, the shift in the speaker. So you may remember from the first two chapters that we have uh, the narrator, so Jeremiah speaking in the person of one who looks on the scene of devastation. He uh, is grieved, uh, exhorts uh, Lady Zion, he does various things. And uh, we've also had uh, Lady Zion, so Jerusalem personified uh, speaking of her sufferings. But uh, there's a dramatic shift at the beginning of chapter 3 because uh, the speaker is not the narrator that we've seen before and it's not uh, Jerusalem, it's not Lady Zion either. It's uh, one person, so speaking in the, the first person, uh, I, but not in terms of the sufferings, oh, sorry, in terms of the sufferings that he has undergone. So he's describing his own sufferings, which the narrator never did in the opening chapters. And yet at the same time, it seems to be uh, that he is describing himself as an innocent sufferer. There's no reference to his own sins. He is suffering then uh, as one who has uh, undergone tremendous uh, affliction. And I'm sure you caught that when we read the opening part of the, the uh, chapter. It's, uh, it's a very strong language. And yet even as you say that, you'll, you'll notice that there's a lot of connection with that language that we've seen in chapter 3 and the first two chapters. It's as if the speaker is gathering up in himself the sufferings of Jerusalem and taking them on as his own sufferings. He's identifying himself uh, with them. Now, I hope that will uh, bring to mind a discussion we had. Admittedly, it was a long time ago. But in, in the second lesson introducing the book, we talked about the servant of the Lord and the songs of the servant in Isaiah. So Isaiah 40 through 65, you see this. Uh, man sent forth, set forth as the servant of the Lord, and, and sometimes he speaks on his own, and yet at other times it seems he's speaking for the nation of Israel. He's an obedient servant, and yet 
he speaks uh, in terms of the disobedience of the nation. And that is, as we explained then, the connection between the head and the body. The Messiah there speaks as the one who perfectly obeys, and yet he takes on himself the uh, sufferings that are due to the people. Uh, And the most familiar example of that is in Isaiah 53, where it's the servant who suffers, and yet he, he suffers for their sins. So I'm going to argue that that's exactly what's going on in chapter 3 as well, that here we should hear the Messiah speaking. He is speaking uh, of sufferings, which are his own sufferings, and yet he identifies with his people in the sufferings. So he not only knows their sufferings, but in a sense he suffers for them. And uh, that's what I'm going to try to spell out a little bit. Okay, so... You know, when you're first preparing a lesson, you go on and on. So this is like three quarters of the lesson as I prepared it. I try to cut it down, so I'm going to go through it fairly quickly. But I've given uh, several references there to uh, help a little bit, at least, to spell out what I mean. So what are some uh, reasons why we should understand the Messiah here as speaking? Uh, Well, first, I've already mentioned Isaiah 53, Uh, There's a lot of connection, not only, you might say, in the bigger picture as the one who suffers for the many, but also in the specific language. So if you look at Lamentations 3, verse uh, 33 and verse 34, so I read 33, I didn't quite read 34. There's a word, he does not afflict willingly nor grieve the children of men, so the word afflict. And then in verse 34, to crush under one's feet. So in Isaiah 53, that same combination of words appears basically the same way within the space of a couple of verses. And apparently it's a very rare combination of two words. So I'm just, I'm not giving you a lot of examples, but there are many cases where the language here uh, ties us into other passages in the Old Testament, which also speak of the Messiah. Um, Psalm 22 is another example of that. So I put up references there. So just maybe this will help us a little bit. There's Psalm 22 I noted especially verses uh, 1 and 2 and then verses 6 through 8. The, uh, the man who speaks in Lamentations uh, chapter 3 uh, says that uh, he shuts out my prayer. Even when I cry and shout, he shuts out my prayer in uh, Lamentations 3.8. And that's the sense you get from reading in Psalm 22. It's not the same language, but... Uh, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping, helping me from the words of my groaning? I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And that connection uh, with Psalm 22 occurs in other ways as well. Uh, at some point here, so it's in verse, um, probably easier to find it here than to look at my notes, uh, the, the taunting song, I think that's in verse 14. I become the ridicule of all my people. In Lamentations 3.14. So there in uh, Psalm 22, verses 6 through 8, despised by the people, those who see me ridicule me. We mentioned this passage before because it ties in closely with the gospel's connection or the crucifixion of Christ. And uh, here again, you see the uh, messianic Psalm 22 uh, and the connection with the uh, man in, in Lamentations chapter 3. Okay, so here I'm already falling into my trap. So I'm going to try to go a little bit more quickly. Uh, Psalm 69 specifically, another Messianic psalm mentions a taunting song, which is in uh, verse 14, the taunting song all the day. I think they're drunkards in Psalm 69, but it's uh, still a taunt. 
just to step back a little bit, there's the same pattern uh, in terms of the suffering of the Messiah in, say, Psalm 22 as in Lamentations 3. That is, uh, there's a description of the way the, the, uh, the man suffers and then a sudden change to hope and uh, joy in the Lord. And that's the same thing you see again in Psalm 22, right? The, at the end of the psalm, uh, all nations will hear. It's a, it's a remarkable transition in Psalm 22 uh, that because we sing it a lot, I'm, I'm not going to try pull up that part of the psalm, but it's a, a similar sort of a bigger picture of what happens. Here's a, a figure who suffers greatly and yet in the end is delivered. And even with Christ on the cross from my God, my God, why have you forsaken me to into your hands, I commit my spirit, a prayer of hope and uh, confidence. So it's a a bigger picture. I'll mention just uh, one other, and that's kind of quickly. You may have noticed in 3, verse 30 that we read, uh, uh, chapter 3, verse 30, let him give his cheek to the one who strikes him and be full of reproach. Um, That may may make you think of the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, uh, you know, if someone strikes you on the cheek, turn to him the other. This he seems there to be alluding to Psalm, uh, to Lamentations 3:30, but even that image of being uh, hit on the cheek or having you know, the cheek, uh, the hairs on the cheek plucked out, is a messianic connection. So Isaiah, uh, sorry, Isaiah 50, and uh, also in the Gospels, you see the same account of Jesus uh, uh, being stricken the same way. So those are some sort of literary connections between Lamentations 3 and the suffering of the Messiah elsewhere in the Old Testament and the fulfillment in the New Testament, as well as the sort of the bigger picture. There's something else which is uh, very striking, and again, which uh, I think an original reader of the book would have noticed, and that's just the way the chapter starts. Did you notice that? I am the man. It's a strange way, it seems, that to start a chapter, and it's the article the is there. It's not I am a man. It is I am the man, as if we're supposed to recognize who this person is. This person stands out. So just a couple of comments on that opening phrase. Uh, So C.J. Williams, so this is Grace Mulder's dad, he's a professor of Old Testament at uh, our seminary, uh, points out that this is a pattern of divine speech in the Old Testament. The Lord says, I am he who delivers you. And Jesus says the same thing in the New Testament. I am the vine and you are the branches. It is a, even in the original, the I is an emphatic sort of I. It draws our attention. And the word, uh, well, I already pointed out the the, but the, the word for man is not the, one of the two usual Hebrew words for man. Um, maybe Adam is the word we're most familiar with, uh, but it's a, it's a, it's a much less common uh, word for man than the other two. And it actually means uh, someone who is strong. And it could be strong as a military person or strong in faith. So this is the, some people translate this, I am the valiant man. I am the, the strong man. Of course, there's a good bit of uh, irony there because this man in all his strength suffers <laughs> tremendously. So he's a valiant man and yet he suffers. But that, that reference to the man as a, a value man, again, is a, a riveting thing. It makes us think of this as not an ordinary one, not just uh, Jeremiah identifying with the people, but it's one who stands out somehow. Uh, and I think we'll see that spelled out as we go through the rest of the book.
the rest of the chapter, I should say. Okay, so that was like 45 minutes compacted into 15. That was my best shot at that. So let me just make uh, a couple of comments uh, about why this is helpful for us to have in mind. So it's a striking way to begin the chapter, as I said. It draws our attention and it makes us think that something different is going to happen. And it, it reminds us that when we read Lamentations, the whole book, and I've tried to point this out elsewhere, we should realize that our Savior suffered all these things for us and more. Uh, Trap, uh, commentator Trapp says something like this. Whenever we read of the suffering of Jerusalem or uh, the suffering of an individual, uh, we should realize that our Savior suffered all these things, and he suffered them in our place in a redemptive way, so that they are not the final they're not the end of our story. Right? Why is it that they are not cast out? Why is it that there's hope? It is because the Messiah suffered these things to bear their sins, and uh, therefore they could be God's uh, covenant people and have hope. So I hope as you, as you think through the whole book, but especially as you think through chapter 3, you, when you reflect on the Messiah, you realize he suffered these things so that even in our afflictions, and there's no question that... Uh, this talks about real afflictions of real people, yet we can have hope because uh, the end we have in mind. So let me just uh, briefly, I'll give you uh, a chance to respond to that, but let me just briefly you give, you, give you an outline. I'm not going to give you an outline of the whole chapter because uh, I'm not actually confident I'm even going to get through verse 33, but um, uh, in terms of what we read, uh, verses 1 through 18 describe the sufferings of the man. So that goes down to uh, give your eyes, uh, sorry, I'm in the wrong chapter. That goes down to I, my strength and my hope have perished from the Lord. And then as I said, there's a, a rapid transition there after verse 18. So verses uh, 19 and following describe uh, hope. Uh, first, uh, the man uh, describes his own hope in the Lord, and that's uh, in the verses immediately following that transition. But then, starting in verse uh, 25, he turns to counsel us. This is a really remarkable passage, as if Jesus in his sufferings turns to give us his counsel and how we should endure suffering. So, uh, verse 25, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him, and so on. So that, it actually goes beyond verse 33, is uh, the counsel of the man having undergone these sufferings. He addresses us. Okay, uh, any comments or questions? I just threw a lot at you, and uh, that was a whittled down version, but uh, any any thoughts about the introduction? Yes, Jeff. What, as you were reading, Right. That's the thing that struck me first. Before you raise the bar, so. Yeah. No, uh, that's exactly right. So CJ is, uh, has written a book on uh, the shadow of Christ in the book of Lamentations. I keep waiting for it to come out, but it's, I think it's due to paper shortage. It hasn't come out. But his first book was the shadow of Christ in the book of Job. And you can see a lot of parallels uh, because you might say of that, that connection. But yeah, it's, it's an individual sufferer. He, he doesn't bring forth his own sin as the reason for his suffering. But it's like, man, this guy is miserable. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, 
the metaphors here are just, uh, I don't know if they're worse than the ones, uh, they're like stronger than the ones in the earlier chapters, but because it's an individual, it's a very, it's a very striking thing. Yeah, that's a good comment. Thanks. Right, yeah, so, right, that's what, that's the way Job started out. Yeah, that's right. Very good, yeah. So Dave, sorry, I saw it, and then Dan. Okay, so Jeff, you want to say it louder, or do you want me to say it? Uh, you can say it. So Jeff was noting that the resemblance between the opening part of the chapter and Job and his sufferings. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The second thing that struck me as you, as you read this first section of verses, is the word that comes to mind is visceral. Yeah, right. Uh, everything here has a has an as an image of uh, of doom, uh, of a utter forsakenness that there's an inevitability of. You've moved my soul far from peace. Uh, I, I can't get back there. I'll never be able to traverse that territory to come back to peace again. It's like a, a bear or a lion waiting right. for ambush. Here's, what am I supposed to do? I'm yep. going to meet the bear. It's right there, and I know it's yeah, and it's visceral in the sense that it's a very physical description. I think Dan pointed that out in connection with uh, was it the last chapter. I mean, that uh, the emotional, there it was the emotions that registered physically, but this guy is getting arrows, you know, shot into his innards. You know, it's a, <laughs> the metaphors are very, very strong that way. Yeah. And again, if you look at it from the point of view of the sufferings of the Messiah, I mean, you realize the significance of Christ's sufferings, which are not only physical, but also emotional. And um, it is a very intense picture. So, Dan. Uh, the all, this, this constant theme of the already and not yet, especially if you're in the midst of great suffering, you try to think about the, this. This happened on the way to, this, to church this morning when you're coming across Lakeview and there's another detour, another set of roads that you, you start to realize just that state of things and yeah. what might be eventually when everything yeah. is prepared. No, this right. that you had earlier on here about the um, when the sun is obscured, you know, you've got a heavy overcast and you think it might break up and eventually you see the sun or now we have airplanes and you go and realize that you pop up through those clouds and it's bright sunny out there. Right. But down yeah. on the ground it's completely different all at the same time. You just don't see what may yeah. come. No, that's an excellent connection and, and that uh, I hope to get there uh, at some point in our discussion, but it, we might as well talk about it now. It, it, there is this amazing transition to hope. So suddenly, you know, your mercies are new every morning. But there are two more chapters, like the two chapters before. So it's not as if uh, suddenly, you know, the music swells and everything is happy again. It is a way in which he is prepared to understand, or we are prepared to understand uh, the end of our suffering and to endure suffering, but it's not as if it's all done. It's not as if somehow the credits roll and everything is fine. And I think that's, I don't know if that's exactly what you had in mind, but that's, that is very clear just reading through the whole chapter. And that's too bad I only read the first half. Uh, but it doesn't, to know the Lord is my portion, this is what I was going to say later, that's a wonderful thing. But it's not there to end the suffering. It's there to make you appreciate um, 
that there is an end and who the end is. Uh, yeah, good. So you can make that a point again anytime, Dan, because it's easy to forget exactly that. Okay, so uh, let's go then and look. Uh, I'm going to spend a little bit of time looking at uh, the sufferings, and Jeff has already pointed out some of this, uh, uh, the suffering. So this is part two, uh, if I can the sufferings of the man. So I'm just going to keep calling him the man. You can think of him as the valiant man. You can call him an M with a uh, you know, man with a capital M, uh, whatever. But uh, what you realize when you read the first uh, 18 verses is that the imagery is changing rapidly. Right? It's, there's this imagery, and then there's this imagery, and they're sort of piled on top of each other in a way that is uh, overwhelming. But one thing that unites them is this uh, theme of the sinister shepherd. Okay, I don't know if when you read this you thought of Psalm 23, but this is like Psalm 23 reversed. And you get that even in the first verse. I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. Okay, So your rod and your staff, they're not comforting me. right? They're afflicting me, and it's a rod of wrath. And you can pick that up. You can pick that up in various places. And again, okay, it's tempting for me to go do this in more detail, but, you know, he makes me walk. It's not in green pastures, right? It's in darkness and not in light. You can see this again and again, even, you might say, most savagely in verses 10 through 12, okay? So the shepherd is there to protect you from the bear and the lion, but now the shepherd is like a bear or a lion, and the shepherd is supposed to use his uh, arrows to protect you, but instead he's, this is like, Shepherd gone berserk, he's shooting the sheep with his arrows, right? So this is, this is exactly what Jeff was talking about. This is, a, and Dave, this visceral sense that I'm under attack, that the one who should, who should be my faithful shepherd is against me, and I'm walking in darkness. And uh, this uh, also, uh, okay, to pursue it a little bit further is this uh, constriction. And I think maybe, Jeff, you referred to this, verses 7 through 9. He has hedged me in so that I cannot get out. Right? The sheep are not in the pasture wandering around. They're stuck in this constrictive pen. And when they cry for help, whatever it is that sheep do to cry for help, no one hears them. Right? Verse 8, he shuts out my prayer. There's no deliverance. That's the the uh, just one sort of way to look at the the terrible affliction that the man, that the Messiah uh, describes uh, using this uh, imagery of the sheep and the shepherd and also others. I'll just point out uh, uh, verse uh, 6, the last part there. He has set me in dark places like the dead of long ago. That's a quote from Psalm 143. You may remember from singing 143 verse 3. So that place of darkness, which of course is a a different metaphor, but uh, of a lack of hope. And you might say that the worst in terms of the affliction comes especially toward the end in verse 18. And I said, my strength and my hope have perished from the Lord. So the commentator Trapp says uh, that the speaker is straddling over the pit of desperation. He's not in despair uh, but he's straddling over the pit. And you can understand, considering everything that he's been through, why that would be the case. Now, in verse, 
verses 19 and uh, through 21 are a sort of a transition from that suffering to the hope. So remember my affliction and my roaming, the wormwood and the gall. And then verse 20 is very uh, helpful to think about. My soul still remembers and sinks within me. So in the midst of sorrows and sufferings, one of the dangers is to mull on our sorrows and sufferings. And that's that's what he's saying in essence in verse 20. My soul remembers, I think about these things, and that only makes it worse. My, I sink uh, within myself. But then, then verse 21 is a remarkable uh, indication that something is going to change. He says, this I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. You look at it and you say, where is the hope? Why is it that he can call to mind something positive? Which, okay, so this, in the next part, uh, he counsels his soul in a good way. That's a good thing in terms of affliction and sorrow is to counsel yourself with the goodness of God. But uh, where does it come from? Uh, That's the question that I'm going to leave hanging for a second and see if you have any comments on the affliction or the sufferings of the man in verses 1 through 18. I went through that fairly quickly. You're probably never going to look at sheep the same way. Uh, Jeff. My, one of my thoughts was because of the limitations of the acrostic poem. Uh-huh. That's why these images are maybe jammed together. To, you know, I, I've got tail up and now I've got to uh, Yeah. Yeah, so you're onto something, and I'm going to spell that out, but that's exactly, I think that's the literary, uh, he's actually taking advantage, you might say, of a certain literary uh device to do that. But yeah, so did everyone hear what Jeff was saying? He's saying the limit, you're limited by using letters of the alphabet in succession. So, um, you know, how do you make everything work out? See, so just to uh, indicate what's going on, look at the, uh, the transition between 10 through 12. So that stands in 13 through 15. He set me up as a target for the arrow, and then he has caused the arrows of his quiver. So the, somehow he's running together these distinct literary structures. Okay, so this is, I'm going to use the word again, this is this enjambment that we talked about before, but not on the, on the level of one line sort of running over to another, but of one thought running over to the other. So you have the arrow at the end of 12 and then the arrow at the beginning of verse 13. So using that same idea, you can see how the literary device helps you to carry over from 19 through 21 to 22. Therefore, I have hope. So you want to read on because what hope is there? And actually, the ESV supplies a colon to tell you you should read on. The New King James just has a period. But I think the sense is, therefore, I have hope. Why? Well, keep reading verse 22. It's through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed. So there is a, he is making use of this structure, but he's like, He's, he's putting a twist on it that's supposed to help us pay attention to the flow of thought. So uh, he uses it to his advantage in a sort of a surprising way, I would say. Um, you're not supposed to like read from Aleph to Beth like that, but he sort of forces you to. So go ahead, Jeff. Oh, and my other comment is I thought that the uh, anti-Psalm 23 nature, this is very interesting. Yeah. But in Psalm 23, right, even though he walks through the valley of the shadow of death, it appears here, right, uh, he still has hope. It's here, he still has hope, but it's separated by one person. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. It's, uh, 
the anti-shepherd is actually the shepherd in the end, who has a good purpose for the affliction of the sheep. But the sheep are just sheep. They don't know. I mean, this is just miserable, right? I don't, I don't know what the shepherd has in mind here. So, yeah, that's a good point. So other thoughts on the, uh, I, I sort of led away the, uh, uh, I let you know why the hope comes in. But other comments on 1 through 18, the affliction. Okay, well, let's, let's turn then to the last part, which is uh, the hope and counsel. So this really begins in, as I said, in the transition from 21 to uh, the following uh, verses. It's sort of hard to say exactly how uh, you should divide the, those two parts. But notice, as I said, what the hope is. It's in verse 22. It's through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I noted in the introduction to Lamentations that these are very familiar verses. They're probably the only verses that most people know from Lamentations. And the really, the really sad thing about that is that if you read them in context, you realize the only reason we can say that is that we have a suffering Savior. The only reason we can say your mercies are new every morning is because he has shown us mercy in Christ. Right? So it's true. I don't mind someone you know, quoting these verses. That's great. But you get more understanding and more benefit from Lamentations if you realize it's because we have someone who identified with our sufferings, who took our sorrows on himself, who died for our sins, and therefore we can enjoy uh, the Lord's mercies. Otherwise, there's only darkness and death and no hope. But there is hope here, and I uh, will try to spell this out a little bit, but um, the reference to God's mercy, so this is the Hebrew word chesed for uh, covenant faithfulness, so the emphasis on the covenant connection we've already talked about in Lamentations, right? They suffered because they violated the covenant, but the covenant also promised renewal and the faithful mercy of God. And this, this is the hope of the man. That is, he hopes in God who keeps his word. And that's a very, very important thing. As I said at the beginning, it's not hope that things will get better, hope that this can't last much longer, it's hope in God. It's hope in a faithful God who doesn't change. And that's why that, you know, great is your faithfulness is such a tremendous thing. It's actually the first time uh, in the whole chapter where the writer addresses God directly. Great is your faithfulness. Now, that's a remarkable thing after being suffer after suffering under such a shepherd. And yet that's the, the hope of the gospel. That's the mercy of God. That's knowing who God is and knowing that God will be faithful to his covenant. That's what uh, brings us through that. So uh, one verse, uh, Psalm 30, verse 5. I asked Henry if he would read this. This is, again, so Psalm 30, I think it's familiar, but it fits in well with this, your mercies are new every morning. For his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, so it's the same image of uh, the joy because because of the faithfulness of God and and uh, this uh, you know this contrast between the the sorrow and the favor that we recognize in God. 
I think uh, one way, for at least for me, a very helpful way to summarize how he focuses on God. That is, this is a, okay, this is a theological hope. Okay? It's a hope focused on God. Is in verse 24, the Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I hope in him. So there he is counseling himself again, right? Instead of, instead of remembering his sufferings, he counsels himself to say, the Lord is my portion. I think the idea of the Lord is our portion is uh, familiar to us. Uh, there, I put up there three psalms, Psalm 16.5, a messianic psalm, explicitly Psalm 73 and 119, in each of which uh, we're taught to think of the Lord as our portion. So remember the, the source of this metaphor when, when the uh, Israelites conquered the land and it was divided up, each tribe got an allotment, but the Levites didn't get an allotment. And they were told, uh, your portion is the Lord. Okay? And that, of course, was a great favor because they were able to serve before God as the priests and as the Levites to serve in other ways in teaching the people. Um, it was also uh, a way to acknowledge their dependence on God, right? Because if they didn't have any farmland, what were they supposed to do? They had to depend on the contribution of the people. And so that, that statement that the Lord is my portion is taken over, as I said, in the Psalms and elsewhere again and again to uh, make us realize that everything we have is in God. Now, if you think about that in terms of what the people just went through, they just lost everything. Right? They lost the land. They lost the temple. They lost their leaders, the, all of the political structure. I mean, that's what, like, chapter one, that was the totality of suffering. They'd lost it all. But the Lord, the psalmist says, the Lord, uh, the Messiah says, the Lord is our portion. And God sort of, you might say, drove them to uh, see that by taking away every other good thing. And it's not just that the Lord is our portion in the sense that he gives us good things, but the Lord is our only ultimate good. All goodness that exists is in God. All that we have is from him. Now, if I had time, we would do a separate uh, discussion of, I didn't invent that very well, we'd do a separate discussion of uh, Psalm 73. You might, uh, if you have time this afternoon, read Psalm 73 in connection with this uh, well, all of uh, the first part of Lamentation, right? The psalmist sees the wicked prosper. He's uh, conflicted in his mind. And, and then he realizes in the end that all of that is going to perish. In other words, he realizes that their portion is in this life. They have no inheritance in this life. But instead, he says, uh, there, whom have I in heaven but you? There is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh and my heart fail but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Everything else is gone. But the last part, you know, he says, but the wicked, they don't have anything. Everything that they think they have is going to perish. They're going to die, right? God sets them in slippery places, as he says. They will pass away. And this this goes back, I think, to the interchange that Dan and I had. Um, You know, it's one thing to say God is our portion, and that sounds really pious, and then, then maybe that means that uh, you can just live in a heavenly-minded way and you won't actually feel any pain, okay? That's not what the Messiah is counseling us us with here. You just have to read the rest of the chapter or the last two chapters of of, uh, Lamentations to realize that knowing the Lord is our portion is what gives us hope. That's what he says here, therefore I have hope. 
And that's what enables us to cry out to God instead of despair, instead of giving up hope, we cry out to God in response and we call on God to act. So to say the Lord is our portion is not like this simple, I was kind of nervous when I criticized Disney. You know, it's not this like simple ending. We'll just sing this happy song. It is the way to endure affliction. It is the way to have hope. It is the way that enables us to persevere and to cry out to God. And I, I think uh, this one statement of the Lord is my portion is a sort of a critical way to make us realize that this is this is theocentric suffering. This is the resolution of our sufferings in finding God as our everything and therefore having hope. Okay, so. Yeah, I thought this was going to happen. So then then there's the counsel uh, from uh, the Messiah, starting in verses 25, and I read through verse 33. So I think I'm not going to force us to go through that in four minutes. Uh, but uh, let me just say again how remarkable it is that in the book of Lamentations, we have the man, the, the valiant man who has been through these things, who first of all tells us, of the Lord as his own portion. And then he turns and he tells us how to endure suffering. Uh, he says, you know, the Lord is good to those who wait for him. He calls us uh, not only to like counsel ourselves, but he gives us his counsel. And it's ultimately that all of our hope is in God. So Jeff, that means the verse will have to wait till next week. But, um, I think I think I won't try to force uh, going through that uh, bit of uh, his counsel because it goes on for a while in chapter three and then uh, there's a transition to a confession of sin and prayer and then uh, calling for God to deliver them. Uh, let me instead uh, pause and see if you have any uh, comments or questions on this. Yes, Vicki. That's very good. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it, you know, again, it's an easy thing to say. <laughs> but uh, you have to read Job to realize how hard it is to say that. And it's the same thing in Lamentations. It's an easy thing to say, great is thy faithfulness, until you you realize uh, the context and what, what it means. Yeah, that's right. So a good, another good connection with Job. Other thoughts? Uh, Dave? Set of those circumstances. Right. 
Yeah, that's right. And that this, uh, you know, the way he counsels his soul, um, it's not as if he says, oh, well, it's not actually happening. It was all a mind trick, you know. No, <laughs> it is happening. It is uh, severe suffering, but it's it's a redirection to the God who is uh, faithful, whose mercies are new every morning. Is that? Yeah, it's also an antidote to the idea that Buddhist way of thinking that you've got too much attachment to yeah, the yeah, yeah, and, right. And, yeah. and so uh, if, if you're if you're going to express the reality and the truthfulness of your present circumstances, that's only half the legend. There's gotta be something else there that endures beyond that and is a clear reality that you have the neighbor of hope. It's it's not it's not mindless hope with Pollyanna and just things will surely get know this cassette is real and I have an obligation to believe that even though I'm in the midst of things that I can't see very clearly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean to go back to that Dixon quote, you know, the the sun is shining even though you can't see it. That's the reality um, in which you understand the reality of your suffering. And you know, very good. That's uh, that's really helpful. The the comparison with the Buddhist, you know, this is all an illusion or however you want to describe it, is it's really helpful. Other thoughts or comments? Okay. Uh, yes, Jeff. Thank you, Alan. This is very interesting. Oh, uh, no. Very good to see this uh, essay portion because, as for myself, not speaking for anyone else here, lamentation isn't something I frequently do. No, I know. Yeah, I... Well, thank you for saying that. I, I think it... It is a difficult book, but we shouldn't avoid it. And I think, especially in our own day, where we, you know, we want to don't want to think about suffering or maybe we suffer, but we don't want to talk about it, right? So it's a uh, it's a very helpful thing. Yeah, but not in the right way, right? Yeah, actually. So the verse you were going to read, the you know, the keep silent means something different than just you know keep it within yourself or whatever. Yeah. Good. Okay. So, uh, Lord willing, at some point we'll finish chapter three. I'm only planning to take, I was planning to take two lessons on chapter three. Okay. I wasn't that optimistic, but, uh, I plan to take one more and then we'll do, uh, we hope do four and five. So let's, uh, close in prayer.